Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. Pay-Per-View, now on iTunes, TuneIn and Spotify. And the first subject this week is the Asia BB case. This is an extraordinary story but when it comes to religion, not that surprising. This is in the Telegraph. Asia Bibi pleads for UK asylum after blasphemy conviction returned. The husband of a Christian Pakistani woman who spent eight years on death row after being accused of blasphemy is asked Theresa May to grant them asylum in Britain. Asia Bibi has faced calls for her life amid widespread protest after she was acquitted of an allegation of insulting Islam's Prophet Muhammad. And the background to that, for those who don't know, is that as a farm labourer, she angered fellow Muslim farm workers by taking a sip of water from a cup she'd fetched for them on a hot day. When they demanded she convert to Islam, because the idea is that it was forbidden for a Christian to drink water from the same utensil from which Muslims drink, and that some of the other workers considered her to be unclean because she was a Christian, referring to the caste system in Pakistan. And when they made insulting statements about Christianity, and when she was demanded to convert to Islam for the sins of mankind, what did your prophet Muhammad ever do to save mankind? And why should it be me that converts instead of you? That she also said, according to a local police officer, before his death, because he had worms in his ears and mouth, he married Khadija, the first wife of Muhammad, just for money, and after looting her, kicked her out of the house. So that's what's claimed was said and what happened. Her husband, Ashik Masi, on Saturday called for the UK to grant the mother and their family refuge amid fears for their safety. In a video seen by the Press Association, he says, I am requesting the Prime Minister of the UK help us and as far as possible grant us freedom. Speaking in Punjabi, he also called for asylum from Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and US President Donald Trump in the footage. Wilson Chowdhury, chairman of the British Pakistani Christian Association, who has also launched a petition calling for their asylum, said the fact no offer has manifested is shocking. Hundreds of thousands of people have rioted and called for her death. The article goes on. The official route to asylum would mean the family would need to make the request after fleeing Pakistan. However, the Pakistani government reached a deal with Islamists to restrict Miss Bibi's travel while the case is reviewed. The chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Chuginhat, said he has asked the Home Office for an urgent evaluation of the situation, the Guardian reported. He says it's clear that Miss Bibi and other religious minorities are in grave danger and Prime Minister Imran Khan needs to decide if he believes in the rule of law or the rule of the mob, the Conservative MP added. Mrs May has previously called for the death penalty to be abolished globally when asked about Miss Bibi's case. Miss Bibi was arrested in 2009, accused of insulting Islam's prophet, during an argument with fellow farm workers and sentenced to death for blasphemy. Lawyers have denied she ever insulted Islam. Campaigners have long criticised Pakistan's blasphemy laws, saying they are misused to abuse religious minorities. Pakistan's Supreme Court acquitted Miss Bibi on Wednesday, upholding the law but saying there was not enough evidence to convict her. Miss Bibi's lawyer fled Pakistan on Saturday while fearing for his life, according to reports. Nasir Saeed, the director of Clash UK, C-L-A-A-S, UK, a charity that supports persecuted Christians in Pakistan, called for Mrs May to intervene quickly. The lives of Asia Bibi and her family are in danger as long as she remains in Pakistan, as the protests following the verdict have shown, he added. He goes on to say, We ask that Mrs May take swift action to help secure the safe exit of Asia Bibi and her family from Pakistan as the situation is becoming increasingly perilous. The article goes on. France and Spain have reportedly offered Miss Bibi asylum. It has been requested that the footage of her husband's marriage is not made public for fear of reprisals. Well, 
there's a difference between Islam and what's known as Wahhabism. This is why you have thoroughly decent, kind, genuine Islamic followers and you have the psychopathic kind. But the psychopathic kind are much more closely aligned with Wahhabism than Islam. It's not Islam which is to blame for terrorist atrocities as much as Wahhabism, ultimately, although even some of the terrorists won't realise. Wahhabism is the same belief as the crazies in Saudi Arabia who chop heads off. Both Islamic State and crazies in Saudi Arabia chop heads off because it's not Islam behind it. It's Wahhabism. This is the same Saudi Arabia to which Britain and America sell arms and never criticise despite its psychopathic nature just as they don't criticise Israel. How many of those arms end up in the hands of terrorists? It's amazing what you can get away with when you're an ally of the West. This is what I call moral outrage for hire. Criticise terrorist attacks and then sell arms to Saudi Arabia. Criticise when it suits and say nothing when it suits. That's moral outrage for hire, that's what I call it. Outside of direct mind control, religion is the greatest form of mind control ever invented because it is a form of psychological fascism, psychological warfare, which is defined as the use of activities that cause fear and anxiety in people you want to influence without hurting them physically. And that sums up the instilling of fear to control religious followers perfectly. Religion is a perceptual prison cell which limits perceptions for a lifetime if people allow it. What is mind control except a rigid, unmoving belief that is implanted into you? Some people develop their religion later in life while others are born into it, especially in Islamic countries and religions of the East, other religions as well. I mean, you go to America, places like the Deep South in America, people are born into Christian families to a large extent there. But isn't it interesting and rather convenient that you're always born into the right religion with right in inverted commas? No matter what part of the world, you're always born into the right religion. But so is every other religious follower that's born into a religion or religious family. So you have to convince, using violence if necessary, every religious follower who worships a different deity to you that yours really is the right one. It's madness. Unfortunately, it's also true. Religious followers are told to adhere strictly to a holy book, a Bible, which goes by different names in different religions. The Talmud, the Quran, which was written by who knows who, who knows when and who knows what circumstances, and changed by who knows who, who knows when and who knows what circumstances, in the time between the book being written to present day. But everything in it is still absolutely correct. Religion is an exercise in division, limitation and control. And if you're the global elite, the less than 1%, the deep, deep state, whatever name you want to use, and you have designs on global control and dictatorship, you have to divide people because of the old technique, divide and rule. And religion is a classic of its kind when it comes to divide and rule. Probably the greatest form of divide and rule ever invented. Different religious followers are played off against different religious followers to create the divide and rule necessary for control. It's interesting, given the arguments over religions and religious deities, that there is such a similarity between them. For example, if you talk to a Christian, they'll say, I'm a Christian and I go to church and this guy in a frock tells me what God wants me to do and what I should do to get to heaven. Then you speak to a Jewish person and they say, 
I'm a Jewish person and I go to the synagogue and this guy in a frock tells me what Yahweh wants me to do and what I should do to get to heaven. Then you speak to an Islamic person and they'll say, I'm an Islamic person and I go to the mosque and this guy in a black frock, because there's always a black frock, or in many cases it is anyway, usually in a frock. This guy in a frock tells me what Allah wants me to do and what I should do to get to heaven. Anyone notice a pattern here? Also, you've got the holy book which tells you everything you need to know to live a life and get to heaven. And if you don't adhere to it or question it, then you're a blasphemer, much like Asia Bibi is claimed to be. You have to live your life according to the holy commandments of the religion or you're in trouble. Religion teaches its followers they're insignificant and must follow God's word or else. And even some of the symbolism of religions has the same origin. A common symbol, of course, is the beard. All the religious deities with beards, and that symbol has the same origin, and it's not what you would call a religious origin. Christmas is said to be a Christian celebration to do with Jesus, and yet Christmas goes back to a pagan Roman festival called Saturnalia, where gifts were given, trees were decorated, and sprigs of holly were displayed. Let's just go through that again. Gifts were given, trees were decorated, and sprigs of holly were displayed. You know, I, I think I've heard that somewhere before. As you can guess from the name, Saturnalia was a festival to worship Saturn, and this is the origin of the beard symbolism. Because it's said that there was at one point an explosion of debris out of Saturn, which formed a luminous crescent, which was at different positions at different points of the day as Saturn moved on its axis. But the crescent directly underneath Saturn gave rise to the symbolism of beards. A classic symbol of Christianity is the cross, but a cross is a flattened out cube, and wouldn't you know it? A cube, especially a black cube, is a symbol of Saturn. And what do Jewish followers pray to in Mecca? A black cube. They're told to arrange themselves in concentric circles, like the rings of Saturn. So these religions that some religious followers fight over are religions for which the followers don't even fully understand, not least with the history and symbolism. For me, the whole idea of treating children like Asia Bibi has been treated in the name of religion and enforcing a religion on them from birth is child abuse. It would be called as much under any other circumstances and so it should be called so in this context. Everyone should be free to come to their own beliefs without having it imposed upon them and they should be free to change and question their beliefs and express that questioning at any given time. Religion is the asset of control freaks which breeds control freaks who are so ill at ease with their children or others coming to different religious beliefs they have to try to convince those others that they're wrong using violence if necessary now of course most religious followers are quite happy just to get on with their lives but of course there's always a certain number different numbers for different religion who are control freaks because religion breeds control freaks comedian Ricky Gervais made a great point about all this when he said if there is a god why did he make me an atheist? That's a great point. If the whole idea is that you worship God or you're in trouble, then why make people who don't believe in God and in fact frequently express why they don't believe in God? The elite want a global dictatorship, a global version of Nazi Germany. And all dictatorships require programming of the official line, which is why we're seeing constant attacks on freedom of speech and expression and constant propaganda, which is what we get through the education system and the mainstream media. Religion fulfills these desires perfectly. The next subject this week is childhood. This is in the Telegraph. 
Britain is medicalizing children rather than bringing them up properly, the head of the health services said. Britain is increasingly medicalizing children instead of bringing them up properly, the head of the health services warned. Simon Stevens said the NHS will expand its mental health services in response to rising levels of anxiety and distress fueled by social media. But he said that far more needed to be done to protect children by giving them an upbringing which shielded them from some of today's pressures. Health officials are currently drawing up plans to improve access to children's mental health services with £2 billion a year set aside for mental health care. But Mr Stevens said society needed to take more fundamental steps to give children a better chance in life. The head of the NHS has already backed the Daily Telegraph's duty of care campaign calling for more stringent regulation of social media sites in order to protect children from harm. Well, I would agree with that, but there's a point, a line that must never be crossed. There's already laws against inciting terrorism and grooming people online. There's laws against inciting hate. There's laws against inciting violence. There's laws against certain material online, especially that children could see. But after the point of posting, after the point of delivery, it has to be after. Because once you give authority or corporations the power to censor before the point of delivery, before the point of posting, they will always abuse that power. So what you do is you get your foot in the door by saying, oh, well, social media is going to clamp down on inciting hatred, inciting terrorism. We're going to stop inciting violence. People say, oh yeah, that's a good idea, yeah, we've got to stop that, we've got to stop people seeing that. But that's not where it ends, that's where it starts. Where it ends is censorship before the point of posting or delivery of anything challenging the official narrative of anything. So all that's left is the official establishment view. That's all anybody hears or sees. That's where it ends. It has to be censorship after the point of posting or delivery. My view is people should be allowed to say anything. People say, you can't just let people say anything. Well, it has to be that way. Because once you start censoring people before they say what they want to say, whatever it is, then you're going down the road of tyranny. The article goes on. Yesterday, he told MPs that society needed to take action on the underlying causes of the twin epidemics of obesity and mental health problems afflicting today's children. There are broader questions that I think are quite fundamental here, he told the Public Accounts Committee, highlighting the impact of social media on Britain's youth. What is it that is driving the increase in the mental health problems, self-harm, and various other expressions of distress and lack of psychological well-being on the part of young people? Well, I think it's various causes, personally. This is what I realised when I was trying to work out, because it seems to be everywhere now. Uh, a while ago now, I noticed that anxiety was everywhere. Even celebrities are talking about it and I was trying to work out what it was and then it hit me that it's quite obvious really that it's not just one thing, it's a variety of things causing it. The article goes on. Earlier this month, Mr Stevens called for a levy on social media firms to fund NHS treatment of problems fueled by social media. He also called for a ban on breast enlargement advertisements during Love Island warning that the adverts later ban wrist stoking body dysmorphia. Yesterday, he said action to protect children from pressures online was a critical warning that statistics due to be published within weeks are set to show record levels of mental health problems among children. We can't just medicalise the failure to provide our children with healthy and nurturing childhood, he told MPs. Earlier this month, Mr Stevens told a global summit that there is now a compelling body of evidence demonstrating the damaging impact of social media on children, which appears to be fueling rising emissions to mental health services. Charities are concerned that long periods online mean children 
are growing up feeling increasingly inadequate as they compare themselves to lives on Instagram and Facebook. Dame Sally Davis, England's Chief Medical Officer, is currently carrying out a review of the impact on technology on children, which will consider whether the government should issue recommended screen time limits. It follows research in the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health, which found that children who spend more than two hours a day on smartphones and video games have significantly worse brain development than those with more strict limits. I've said before that children are being targeted in numerous ways because they're the generation who will grow up in the world that we're in now and that's being built around us every day. I talk in episode 38 about pressure on kids. Kids are suppressed in various ways. You've got childhood being medicated against, which is what this article is talking about, not least with ADHD, which is in many cases children being bored rigid at school. Given something interesting to do, they'd pay more attention. But what often happens is a kid will be diagnosed with ADHD and be given drugs to take, which can actually make them worse. I talk about this in episode 33. If you look at kids and childhood nowadays, you have to ask the question, does traditional... If you look at kids and childhood nowadays, you have to ask the question, does traditional childhood still exist? With all the technology and the fear of parents to let their children out nowadays, does traditional childhood still exist? I lived a traditional childhood, as I've said before. I was always out playing virtually every day. You can't underestimate, in my view, the importance of that. I mean, we've all seen examples of what happens in later life with people who don't experience that in childhood, who don't live a traditional childhood. This article talks about shielding children from certain aspects of the world. Well, one of the best ways to do that, ironically, is by letting them see it, because then they can compare the two. They can see the difference. But how are they going to see it if they're inside all day on technology or watching television all day? There's a great episode of Black Mirror on this subject. And I know I've mentioned it before, but it's always worth mentioning because you never know how many new listeners there are with each episode. The Black Mirror episode is called Archangel and it's brilliant. This article is about medicalizing childhood rather than bringing children up properly and people like Aldous Huxley talked in the early 20th century about using pharmacological methods in other words drugs to suppress the population mentally and to suppress their desire or inclination to rebel when you look at what Aldous Huxley was saying when George Orwell was saying it's very clear they were not coming from imagination alone they had access to the elite's agenda and thus they could talk about things happening and changes in society that were not happening or were not present at the time Babies and toddlers are being given an increasing number of vaccines. I know of a couple myself who had their child vaccinated and then the child suffered problems because of it. And with all the controversy around vaccines, and quite rightly so, we have no real, genuine, proper investigation into vaccines. I mean, if the medical system was there for the benefit of the people and if society was run for the benefit of the people, people would know the truth about vaccines. But what happens instead is we have a medical profession coming out to defend itself and the vaccines. This is what always happens. Instead of looking into what's claimed, investigating it, including claims by parents, the medical profession comes out to defend its wares because if it didn't, the game's up with a genuine investigation into pharmaceutical medicine, which I talk about in episode 17. Doctors and people working within the medical profession who come out and make claims about vaccines or other medicine have the medical profession come down on them like an industrial number of tons of bricks because it's what I've heard referred to as defending the first domino. If you line a row of dominoes up correctly, you know when one goes, they all go. And so the first domino is the question, is pharmaceutical medicine and or vaccines safe and what we're told they are? When the answer is proven 
to be known. Of course, there will be shades of grey, but overall, when the answer is proven to be no, the next question is why, and who owns the pharmaceutical companies and corporations globally, ultimately. And then it's, oh, so there's an elite then, or, oh, so it's the elite then. And then what else do the elite own? What else are they involved with? And so the dominoes keep falling as the answers keep coming. And so defending the first domino is absolutely crucial. That's not to say that every doctor who's defending the first domino knows that's what they're doing. They just think what they're saying is true and that vaccines really are safe. I'm talking about the medical profession as a whole. This is why, no matter what, this is why, no matter what evidence and the scared of evidence, the massive lie of human-caused global warming, or climate change. Notice when temperatures started falling, they called it climate change, not global warming, which I've talked about in episodes 18 and 29. They don't relent, they carry on with the idea of human-caused global warming because, because it can't be revealed for the scam that it is because too many dominoes would fall. This is why anyone in the scientific arena questioning climate change, the scientific profession comes down on them like an industrial number of tons of bricks, just like anyone in the medical profession questioning vaccines gets the same treatment, defending the first domino. Going back to kids, you've got schools lining up kids to be vaccinated, just as they did when I was in school, and I'm 28 now. What are schools doing getting kids vaccinated? They're supposed to be there to teach kids, and that's it. What are they doing getting them vaccinated? Not that I think that kids should be vaccinated at all, in my view, never mind the amount that kids are vaccinated from birth. The ludicrous amount. But if anywhere is for vaccination, it's the doctor's surgery, not the school. But then the doctor's surgery and the school are both extensions of the state. So it's no surprise when you look at it from that perspective. I've said before that what we call education is merely propaganda of the state. I talk about schools increasingly taking over kids' lives and the state becoming the parent of children, which is the idea, in episode 10. In episode 10, this article talks about the cause of obesity. It says, what is the cause of obesity in kids? Well, it's a combination of causes, not least kids' addiction to technology with no exercise because of their being glued to technology and in the process consuming shite food and drink, snacks while they're on the technology like Coke or whatever other drink or food item with shite ingredients. I talk about artificial sweeteners like aspartame in episode 37. You've got growth hormones in certain meat products, especially the cheap meat products, which Many families are forced to buy and eat because the quality meat is priced too high. Cheap meat or certain cheap meat products have growth hormones in, which also contributes to fueling the lack of exercise. The bigger you are, the less likely you are to exercise. Not always the case. There are exceptions, but in many examples it is true. And you're even less likely to exercise if you're glued to technology. Scientists used to think the way the brain is when you're born is how it stays for life but they've now discovered what's known as brain plasticity, meaning the brain can change depending on experience and stimulus. And if you're constantly stimulating the brain via technology, then the brain will change to reflect that. And it's much harder to get the brain back to how it was before than it is to get it into the constantly stimulated state in the first place. I talk about this in episode 21. Technology also contributes to the constantly irradiated environment that kids live in when they're at home and in school people live in a constantly irradiated environment in general the amount of radiation in the atmosphere now compared with a few decades ago is stunning absolutely stunning and it's no accident 
technological radiation contributes to cancer and various other health problems. And that's one of the reasons for the radiation. The depopulation agenda I've mentioned so many times before. As well as creating the smart grid, the technological wireless network, or the cloud as it's also called, to which all human minds are designed to be attached with the transhuman agenda, which I talk about considerably in episode 11. But there's also deeper reasons for the radiation. Contributing to the transhuman agenda are chemtrails, which are like contrails from jet airplanes, but instead of being there for a few seconds and then disappearing, and then there's some more, and then it disappears as you watch the plane go across the sky. Chemtrails stick around in the sky and expand massively, and they contain metals like aluminium, barium, strontium, and aluminium has been cited as a possible cause of Alzheimer's, and then people wonder why Alzheimer's is on the rise. And then the attempt is made to treat, or at least mitigate, the effects of Alzheimer's with pharmaceutical medicine. And the author of this article is right. Bringing kids up properly, or not, not to say that there's one only way to do it. Of course, there's various ways, and it depends on the kids you're talking about, the situation. But a childhood... So the author of this article is right. Childhood is being erased more and more. And we need a fundamental reassessment of childhood, I would suggest, because these changes to childhood are all leading in one direction. As the state seeks to turn kids into nothing more than compliant, unquestioning slaves, cogs in a machine in a totalitarian system. The next subject this week is... This is indicative of the war on freedom of speech and freedom of expression, the ongoing war. It's nothing to do with hate speech. It's to do with stamping out all information and opinion challenging the official narrative. That's where this war on freedom of speech and expression ends. Constant paperwork and redelegating police duties is partly due to the agenda to privatise policing. It's the same with the NHS being in the rundown state that it is. If you want to privatise and corporatise, same thing then you need to make sure what you want to replace is not working. So to soften public resistance to privatisation, Noam Chomsky is quoted as saying, that's the standard technique of privatisation. Defund, make sure things don't work, people get angry, you hand it over to private capital. That's basically it. The privatised law enforcement will include a massively increased police state, not least with technology and robotics eventually controlled by AI, strong AI as it's called. We hear a lot about hate crime rising. This article talks about it, but it's not hate crime that's rising. What's rising is questioning and challenging of the official narrative. So that's why hate crime seems to be on a massive scale. It's not. It's just what's been labelled as hate crime, because it's not politically correct. People questioning and stating facts about areas covered under political correctness that you supposedly can't talk about. Watch me because those areas are fundamental to the elite's agenda. So when it comes to labelling hate speech, we should ask, is it hate speech or is it questioning what needs questioning and saying what needs saying? This is also about breeding a weak population. You have to look to the state to protect them from what they are offended by or in many cases perceived to be hate speech rather than just getting on with your life. Authority is very happy to help those who look to authority to protect them, and what those people don't realise is they also will be living in this society in which their alternative opinion and expression, if they have any, will be censored. Policing policing should be about catching criminals and protecting the public instead of focusing on someone making a statement someone else was offended by or focusing on perceived 
hey, but of course, as I keep saying, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. So policing has 900, 900 anti-hate experts to stamp out hate crime, which in many cases is nothing more than banter or alternative opinion or expression, challenging the official narrative, because we live in a free democratic society, so we can't have that, can we? Policing, this is in the Daily Mail. It's criminal that the Met Police is giving up on burglars, but has 900 anti-hate experts, writes former Scotland Yard chief Philip Flower. Genuine hate crimes are abhorrent and have no place in a civilised society. But are hate crimes generally worse than burglary, arson, assault and rape? Are the psychological injuries suffered by the victims of hate crime worse than the psychological and sometimes physical scars carried by those who have been physically or sexually assaulted, or had their homes ransacked and precious belongings stolen? Certainly where hate is an aggravating factor in serious crime, it must be taken into account. But how much investigative effort should our overstretched police forces be expected to invest in dealing with minor verbal or written abuse that someone perceives to be a hate crime? It is a debate that must be had, which is why I welcome the intervention by Sarah Thornton, head of the National Police Chiefs Council. As the Mail reports today, Miss Thornton is calling for a refocus on core policing for officers to be allowed to prioritise today's crimes such as burglary and violence rather than hate crimes such as misogyny and historical sex abuse. It's about time we heard a police chief speak in common sense because it has been a sorry few weeks for the reputation of the thin blue line. First, an influential committee of MPs warned that the failure of many forces to cope with everyday offences and to curb violent crime means that policing is at risk of becoming irrelevant to many people. If that wasn't damning enough, a frontline officer then claimed victims of theft could soon be asked to carry out their own investigations. At the same time, forces are reported to be ignoring crimes such as cannabis possession and fuel theft while the number of targeted stopping searches in London where knife crime is soaring and there have been more than 100 murders this year has fallen. This national crisis in policing seems to have passed ministers by. How else can one explain the launch yesterday of a £1.5 million publicity campaign focusing on hate crime to reassure those vulnerable to it that it is taken seriously? Meanwhile, my old force, the Met, loudly boasts that it has over 900 specialist crime investigators working across London's dedicated hate crime community safety units. How much safer that community would be if those 900 officers were returned to the beat? I'll say it again. Genuine racial and religious abuse must be clamped down on, likewise abuse on account of someone's sexuality or gender identity. But the police are now having to contend with a ludicrous situation by which large numbers of individuals who've experienced what can only be classified as perceived slights, willful sores, rude jokes, swearing, Report their grievances to the police and because it is policy, officers are compelled to follow them up. In contrast, when it comes to burglary and assault, police can screen out instances where the chances of identifying a perpetrator or securing a conviction are slim. Police logged a record 94,098 hate crime offences in 2017, up 17% in a year. At the same time, the Office of National Statistics last month reported overall violence rose by 19% in the year to June 2018, while the murder rate increased by 14% and robberies by 22%. Surely it is the restoration of law and order to counteract these truly depressing figures for violence, murder and robbery that must be the government's top priority. Ultimately, this means more resources for the police. Cuts imposed on forces since 2010 have undermined the state's capacity to tackle criminality, with the 20,000 fall in the number of officers. According to the independent watchdog, the National Order Office, police funding fell in real terms by 19% over the past eight years compared with the 31% increase between 2001 and 2010. No wonder so many forces are struggling to cope with even the basis of crime fighting as Simon Kempton, a National Police Federation representative and a sergeant in the Dorset Constabulary outline so vividly this week. 
At a conference in London, Sergeant Kempton suggested that instead of calling the police, victims of theft should scour websites such as eBay and Gumtree to try to find their belongings because local police have neither the staff nor the technology to do detective work. As a police officer who served for 32 years, laterally as a chief superintendent with the Met, this makes me deeply uncomfortable. Urging the public to take the law into their own hands weakens the very foundation of policing. It encourages vigilantism and contemporary authority. But I do understand Sergeant Kempton's despair. It illustrates the desperate position the police find themselves in, caused not only by underfunding but also by the ever-growing burden of red tape imposed on them. Posturing on politicians and police chiefs lenient sentences and soft prison regimes. Real improvements in police performance could be achieved without additional cash if there was the will to deal with the destructive influence of intrusive official and wasteful mismanagement and warped political correctness. Take excessive paperwork. When I was a young constable, I could arrest and process a prisoner for theft in about an hour. Today, the same case would take at least a day and a half, so we have the ridiculous situation in which most police officers now spend more time doing paperwork than patrolling the streets. In the same vein, computer databases, which should be a vital police tool, have been turned into yet another administrative burden. When the Met introduced the crime report information system in 1992 to store crime reports, I predicted it would mean an effective loss of a thousand officers a year in London alone because so much time will be lost in putting data. Equally damaging to current policing is the fashionable approach to recruitment with its emphasis on academic qualifications. I am disturbed to see long-serving sergeants and constables replaced by fast-tracked jargon-spouting inspectors and superintendents with neither experience of policing nor an appreciation of the true nature of the job. We are told this will enhance management skills at senior levels, but that is a deceit. While vital streetwise wisdom has declined, the increase in managerial effectiveness has been negligible. Just as depressing is the growing politicization of the police where the focus is shifted from the just as depressing is the growing politicization of the police where the focus is shifted from protecting the public to propagating a politically correct agenda, such as the new campaign to publicize loosely defined hate crimes. It is typical of the distorted priorities of our government and the authorities with their desperate virtue signalling, and in the rare cases where criminals are locked up, the state is reluctant to treat them accordingly. This week we learn that Feltham Young Offenders Institution in West London is spending £36,000 on therapy igloos, where inmates will have a quiet space for sensitive conversations. Proof, if any more were needed, that British law enforcement is in the grip of cowardice, where the demands of criminals come before the needs of the law-abiding public. We need real change. More Government funding would be a start, but to fix our broken policing system, we need to facilitate our police officers to concentrate on what they're best at, policing. This is indicative of the war on freedom of speech and freedom of expression, the ongoing war. It's nothing to do with hate speech. It's to do with stamping out all information and opinion challenging the official narrative. That's where this war on freedom of speech and expression ends. The constant paperwork and re-delegating police duties is partly due to the agenda to privatise policing. It's the same with the NHS being in the rundown state that it is. If you want to privatise and corporatise, same thing, then you need to make sure what you want to replace is not working. So to soften public resistance to privatisation. Noam Chomsky is quoted as saying, that's the standard technique of privatisation. Defund, make sure things don't work, people get angry, you hand it over to private capital. That's basically it. The privatised law enforcement will include a massively increased police state, not least with technology and robotics eventually controlled by AI, strong AI, as it's called. We hear a lot about hate crime rising. This article talks about it, but it's not hate crime that's rising. What's rising is questioning and challenging of the official narrative. So that's why hate crime seems to be 
on a massive scale. It's not. It's just what's being labelled as hate crime because it's not politically correct. People questioning and stating facts about areas covered under political correctness that you supposedly can't talk about. Watch me. Because those areas are fundamental to the elite's agenda. So when it comes to labelling hate speech, we should ask, is it hate speech or is it questioning what needs questioning and saying what needs saying? This is also about breeding a weak population. You have to look to the state to protect them from what they are offended by or in many cases perceived to be hate speech. Rather than just getting on with your life, authority is very happy to help those who look to authority to protect them. And what those people don't realise is they also will be living in this society in which their alternative opinion and expression, if they have any, will be censored. Policing. Policing should be about catching criminals and protecting the public instead of focusing on someone making a statement someone else was offended by or focusing on perceived hate. But of course, as I keep saying, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. So policing has 900, 900 anti-hate experts to stamp out hate crime, which in many cases is nothing more than banter or alternative opinion or expression challenging the official narrative because we live in a free democratic society so we can't have that can we the, the final story this week is poppies this is in the express james mcclean why does stoke star not wear a poppy on his shirt this is stoke football club James McLean joined Stoke during the summer, whose upcoming games are against Middlesbrough and Nottingham Forest. The Republic don't know what that's got to do with anything. The Republic of Ireland International took the same decision at previous clubs Sunderland, Wigan and West Brom. The 29-year-old is a native of Derry, the site of Bloody Sunday in 1972, where British soldiers shot dead 13 civilian protesters. McLean said he knew many people would disagree with his decision, but asked for it to be respected. In a statement released by Stoke, the player said, I know many people won't agree with my decision or even attempt to gain an understanding of why I don't wear a poppy. I accept that, but I would ask people to be respectful of the choice I have made, just as I am respectful of people who do choose to wear a poppy. The club added, we recognise that the poppy means different things to different individuals and communities. And like the Royal British Legion, do not believe that anybody should be forced or even pressured to wear the poppy against their free will. James has informed us that he will not wear a Remembrance Day poppy in our next two games. We respect his decision and his right to follow his own convictions. McLean was playing for Wigan in 2014 when he explained his decision in a letter to club chairman Dave Whelan, which was published on their website. And he says... Dear Mr. Whelan, I wanted to write to you before talking about this face-to-face -face and explain my reasons for not wearing a poppy on my shirt for the game at Bolton. I have complete respect for those who fought and died in both world wars. Many I know were Irish-born. I've been told that your own grandfather Paddy Whelan from Tipperary was one of those. I mourn their deaths like every other decent person and if the poppy was a symbol only for the lost souls of World War I and World War II, I would wear one. I want to make that 100% clear, you must understand this. But the poppy is used to remember victims of other conflicts since 1945 and this is where the problem starts for me. For people from the north of Ireland, such as myself, and specifically those in Derry, scene of the 1972 Bloody Sunday Massacre, the poppy has come to mean something very different. Please understand, Mr Whelan, that when you come from Cregan, like myself, or the Bogside, Brandywell, or the majority of places in Derry, every person still lives in the shadow 
of one of the darkest days in Ireland's history, even if, like me, you were born nearly 20 years after the event. It is just a part of who we are, it ingrained into us from birth. Mr. Whelan, for me to wear a poppy would be as much a gesture of disrespect for the innocent people who lost their lives in the Troubles and Bloody Sunday especially, as I have in the past been accused of disrespecting the victims of World War One and World War Two. It would be seen as an act of disrespect to those people, to my people. I am not a warmonger or anti-British or a terrorist or any of the accusations levelled at me in the past. I am not a warmonger or anti-British or a terrorist or any of the accusations levelled at me in the past. I am a peaceful guy. I believe everyone should live side by side, whatever their religious or political beliefs, which I respect and ask for people to respect mine in return. Since last year, I am a father and I want my daughter to grow up in a peaceful world like any parent. I am very proud of where I come from and I just cannot do something that I believe is wrong. In life, if you are a man, you should stand up for what you believe in. I know you may not agree with my feelings, but I hope very much that you understand my reasons. As the owner of the club, I am proud to play for. I believe I owe both you and the club supporters this explanation. Yours sincerely, James McLean. There's another article here. Also about poppies. This is in Daily Mail. ITV newsreader who refuses to wear a poppy on air because she's not allowed to back other charities hits out on trolls bombarding her with a torrent of racist abuse. Every year, one ITV newsreader is subjected to a torrent of racial abuse about the decision not to wear a poppy live on air. Charlene White, 38, has for a long time not worn a poppy on screen, an item used to commemorate those who lost their lives during warfare. But it is not because she doesn't support the British Legion, which sells the poppy to raise money for those currently serving in the armed forces and their families. It is instead for another reason, one which she has time and time again had to clarify with her tormentors online. In 2014, she clarified her position in an article on the ITV News website, but she has once again had to share the story after receiving a flurry of racial abuse this year. Tweeting a link to the original article she wrote, For those asking tonight, some nicely, others not, here's an article explaining why I don't wear a poppy on air. I wear a poppy off screen. I donate to the British Legion. I come from a forces family. In the article, she claims that her decision not to wear the poppy on screen is due to her being a patron of a number of charities. She said, I support and a patron of a number of charities and due to impartiality rules I am not allowed to visually support them all whilst presenting news programmes. That includes things like a red ribbon for World AIDS Day or a purple band for Bowel Cancer Awareness Month. Both these and many more charities do great things in the UK but I'm not allowed to give them exposure on screen. Due to her decision not to wear the poppy on screen, she claims to have received both racist and sexist abuse. But it is not that she never wears the poppy, far from it. She says, in my private life, it's very different. I wear a poppy on Armistice Day. In fact, I wear one that my friend Jen's mum knitted for me a few years ago. And I proudly have one of the ceramic poppies from the Tower of London on my mantelpiece. And every year I donate to the British Legion. Miss White goes on to say that she strongly supports the work of British service personnel and is aware of the sacrifices made by servicemen a hundred years ago. She says, I come from a forces family. My dad served in the RAF and my uncle served in the army. When I first decided not to wear the puppy on screen, I spoke to both of them to make sure they were okay with it and they both support my decision. The article goes on, this year's poppy appeal will continue up until Remembrance Sunday, which this year takes place on November the 11th. Isn't it always November the 11th? It will also mark the hundred year anniversary since the end of the war in 1918. Well, the poppy, for those listening in other parts of the world, is sold to commemorate servicemen and women who have died in war and also to raise money for British servicemen and women who are struggling with ill health and complications health-wise, physically and mentally, as a result of war, who fought in the many wars Britain has got itself involved in. The poppy means different things to different people, as Stoke City said in a statement about James McLean's decision not to wear a poppy. So why not respect everyone's decisions regarding poppies? 
everyone will ascribe a different meaning to wearing a poppy, so they should be respected on the decisions they make as a result, instead of imposing your will on other people because you believe they should wear a poppy. And also this virtue signalling, where you just wear a poppy and castigate others for not wearing one because it's seen as the right thing to wear one. We're told that servicemen and women fought and died in wars to protect our freedom. I don't agree with that, and I explain in episode 40 about wars being an excuse to change society, but the servicemen and women believed they were fighting for freedom, and that's enough to commemorate them and their efforts to fight for freedom, even if they were not actually doing so. They believed they were fighting for freedom, and that freedom includes the freedom to refuse to wear poppies. Instead of just castigating someone for refusing to wear a poppy or forcing someone to wear a poppy, especially if they're a public figure or a newsreader, just listen to their reason for refusing to wear a poppy, and maybe they might actually have a genuine reason and even if they don't that's their choice how about all views being given equal chance to be heard and shared so then people can have a much more balanced view there's also the white poppy which is used to say i'm commemorating servicemen and women but also saying i want peace it's also used to stand against the glamorization of war and the promotion of war but because of this inverted world we live in that's seen as controversial the white poppy Poppies can also act as a reminder of the reality of war, the mass slaughter and horrific sights servicemen and women have to see and what they have to endure as part of fighting a war. And this causes, for some, horrible memories which they have flashbacks of in later life. Some servicemen and women also find it hard to readjust into normal life because they've been conditioned to respond to orders all day, every day, and live their life as a set routine. So when they get back into the world and life outside of the army, then they find it hard to live a more spontaneous life. Although, although having said that, people's lives are very routine and increasingly controlled anyway, to be fair, a lot of the time. I talked in the last episode about wars changing society, and many wars, at least, are engineered into place to this very end. And speaking of an end, this is the end. So, that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contest and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.